welcome to our Roll With Me podcast. Before we start, we have a few announcements. We upgraded our sound equipment and are now working with a sound editor. A big thank you to Denny Gautier. The music you are now hearing is Denny's work, and this song is called Let Me Go. It can be found on his album, The Passenger. Listen to more of Denny's music at deni.me. Today's episode is brought to you by Thule, creators of roof racks, cargo boxes, bike racks, and accessories that make it possible to live an active lifestyle. We've been using their products for a while, and we love that they are durable and give us storage for our skis, snowboards, and backpacking gear. Find out more about their products at Thule.com. Let's get started. We are here with Janessa and John of Unbound Nomads. These two are living out of their Casita travel trailer, unbound from debt, rent, locations, and emotional baggage. To them, time will always be greater than any amount of money. We talk with them about finding food in the wilderness, working remotely, and the philosophy they use to navigate life. Hey guys, thanks for joining us. To start off with, let everyone know how they can follow along on your journey. Hey! Hi everyone, I'm John. So right now we kind of go by the name Unbound Nomads on social media, so like Instagram and Facebook would be the easiest way to kind of stay updated with us. Great, thanks for sharing that. So what prompted you to leave your previous lifestyle for one on the road? There was a bunch of different factors that went into it. We were living in um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We got married in 2013 and we were living in an apartment in the city and uh, I was working for a marketing agency. And um, we were enjoying our lives, but we were just sort of, we knew even before we got married, we sort of knew that, that we were going to do something like this eventually, sort of in a vague sense. We didn't know exactly what what it would look like, but I grew up traveling, Janessa grew up traveling a lot, and um, we really wanted to kind of take a few years here and um, explore the country. Yeah, and I think it kind of started a while ago, like six years ago, John was living in Canada, I lived in Spain with my parents, and he came and visited me, and we sort of fell madly in love, we were 17 and 18, and I just remember spending nights sitting on my rooftop with him talking like we just were dreaming about all these things we wanted to do and then over time it kind of morphed into doing them together and we wanted to travel and we didn't really know what that looked like and now now I feel like we're actually doing it which is really fun (laughs) when you guys are thinking about hitting the road you knew you wanted something with a little bit more versatility give us a little bit of a rundown on the process of looking for rigs and how you ended up with the one you have. Sure. So um, when we were looking at going on the road and looking at what kind of rig we wanted, we found, um, we started looking at Casita travel trailers. They're made in Texas. Basically a fiberglass hull, of a, almost like a boat hull. Like it's, it has two pieces. The top and the bottom are like molded fiberglass rather than like um, what you call like slab-sided fiberglass. So it's, it's all one piece essentially. So we were looking at those and kind of narrowed it down to the, what t- the type we wanted. And then we just spent like i don't know six months looking on craigslist (laughs) yeah we just sort of searched craigslist within about a 15 hour radius until we found something in our budget and and then road tripped about 13 hours to pick it up (laughs) can you share what your budget was we had a little bit of a flexible budget um the nice thing about the casita type of travel trailers is they have a pretty strong following and they don't really lose their resale value as much as other rvs because of the, the way the fiberglass is constructed. We knew we were going to be spending a good bit more for a casita than we would for another type of used, you know, just 16-foot trailer. Um, so our budget was around 8000 which is what we ended up spending. And what have you done to make it your own? 
One thing I did is um, we put solar panels on top. Um, so we used two 150 watt panels initially, and then one of them got smashed up in an accident. So we still have the one. So it's 150 watts powering three 12 volt car batteries. And then we have like a converter or whatever. And we run everything on 12 volt. So like all of our laptops and stuff, we just use like mini converters. That way we don't lose as much electricity as converting it all to AC. So that was one thing we did. Yeah, it didn't It didn't take a lot of mods, I don't think. Um, it was in really good condition. The previous owners have been really good to it. And casitas kind of last forever. Oh, we, we changed out a table. We got a... Uh, one of our Amish friends to make a really nice wood tabletop. We painted up the cabinets. It was a lot of just surface. We removed all the carpeting and put in uh, like fake hardwood flooring. Yeah, so it was a lot of a lot of like little surface updates, but nothing structural or intense. How long did all of those things take you to do? We sort of yeah did them over a period of time. Over time, yeah. Because um, we we I think the first maybe almost the first year we just left the carpet in and then we changed that out. After being on the road for a period of time, the solar we did right the solar we did right away. I kind of got everything together, and then I had an uh, Amish friend of mine actually install everything. All the other stuff we did, I think we painted all the cabinets and stuff the first like the right away. Oh, our our second winter in it, we um we put in a wood stove. Oh, that's we right. We forgot about that. <laughs> so we took out a the, there's like a little closet space by the bathroom, and we took out the closet and installed a little custom-made wood stove, also by an Amish friend. Amish friends are wonderful to have for little (laughs) projects. And it was really fun. We stayed warm all winter. So you two are equipped to go off the grid for a long period of time. How long have you been off the grid? It can be pretty indefinite beyond just water, I would say. We pretty much never plug into electricity, so... We didn't plug in for like a year and a half straight. Yeah, I think we went for a year and a half, no plug-ins. Um, eventually we have to, if we're using the bathroom, we eventually have to dump the sewer. Um, I would say on average, like when we're out boondocking, we'll maybe go into town once a week or every two weeks and, and restock on water in like seven gallon jugs and then bring it back and restock on food. Maybe once a month we'll pull into a campground and dump everything and put in new water. Mm So it's, it's a pretty easy setup, actually. So I noticed that you two talk a lot about living off the land. Can you share some experiences and why you live this way? Sure. So I grew up, um, we, we actually were missionaries in Canada, so we, we didn't have, it was, we lived kind of more of a uh, uh, week-to-week life. <laughs> they call it faith-based, I think, where it's, um, you're funded basically by people supporting your mission. So we didn't have a lot of money growing up. And my dad's always been pretty big on kind of sort of having an impact on what you're actually, what you're eating. So like if the meat you're eating, having an involvement in that. So um, we did a lot of like butchering our own, our own meat and hunting and that kind of thing. And so then as we've been on the road, um, Janessa and I, that's one thing that we've, we've tried to do is, um, you know, know where our food's coming from. So whether that's, you know, through, you know, ethical harvesting of animals or whether that's through, you know, gathering herbs or whatever. It's one of those things that it's, it's an ideal, and we've done a good bit of that. You know, we do um, some fishing and, and that kind of thing. The wild plant something we've been trying to work more on. We haven't done enough of that. <laughs> we're not very good at that yet. So we're just sort of trying to kind of get better at it. But yeah. that's the ideal, at least. Tell us a little bit about some of the memories that you have around meals that you've made or things that you foraged for. Some of the best memories are, are honestly hunting trips with John's family to get meat that actually feeds the family for 
the whole year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's really quite a family affair. Like um, we'll go out camping in the Canadian wilderness and and really live off the land. Like um, John's dad owns a little restaurant in Toronto that makes bannock, which is a Native American food. And so um, last winter, the guys were out, out hunting and they, they were like living off of bannock with wild, what did you guys have in it? Wild blueberries mm-hmm. and getting tea from the land. That kind of thing is, I don't know, it's like the best experience to be in nature, thriving off of it and knowing that you're you're actually providing for a year's worth of food for your family. I think for me, like some specific memorable experiences would be like, like last year we were able to get a moose. And so a lot of the meat stayed with the family. We kept a bunch in the, in the camper. So I just remember one time, like last winter, it was like the middle of the winter and I was frying up some moose meat on our wood stove in our camper. And it was like, <laughs> like it's such a moment in my mind. Um, yeah, I remember that as well. One time we were like getting our car, getting our Jeep fixed at a Jiffy Lube and we were just sitting in the camper outside, frying up moose meat. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and it's just, it's just a great feeling. <laughs> so on the flip side, is it ever hard to be in a city living a city life when you're used to an off-the-grid lifestyle? It's definitely wearing. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you've got to go through a phase when you first kind of move back into, you know, being dependent only on grocery stores and living um, with lots of people around and lots of activity and sound. You, there's like an initial phase of like adjusting to that that can be kind of hard. And then it's fine for a bit. And then after, usually for me, it's about maybe a month or so. I need to eat, like just get out and, and do something outdoors. Like just, even if it's just hike through a bunch of woods or something, it's sort of like just grows and grows. And then eventually we just have to go do something else. Yeah, I can always tell, especially in John, when he starts, if we re- sort of re-enter society after after a few weeks, he starts getting a little claustrophobic. (laughs) And how long have you two been living this way? We started January 1 of 2014, so it'll be two years in a month or so. Yep, we moved out of our apartment on Christmas Eve, which I don't recommend because then we were like rushing to Christmas Eve parties. Oh my goodness. (laughs) So were you two working office jobs before or working remotely? What did that look like? I was full-time in the office. I had some of my stuff I did remotely, but basically it was a standard office job. Um, and Janessa was mostly in school that year. Yeah, I was doing school online um, because we had just gotten married, so we wanted to be able to... John had to travel some for his job, so we always wanted to be together. So I was doing school online, which wasn't a big switch. So how do you fund your journey? I know that you are living off the land for the most part, so you are able to find the food that you eat, but what about other expenses like gas or small other things that you might come across in your travels? Sure. So um, in the spring of 2013, actually, I started a company called Brio Industries that manufactures wood-burning outdoor fire pits. They're like, you build a fire in them like a normal fire pit, but then they have a secondary combustion system, so it's about 80% less smoke. So we started that, and so by the time we went on the road in the beginning of 2014, that was sort of up and running. Um, and it's been continuing to grow since then. And I do a little bit of freelance writing, which kind of funds my school. And so we sort of say we live we live a pretty regular life, I feel like, um, just wherever we want to be. Like, the location doesn't matter. But we still do work some of the time. We kind of live by the four-hour work week, if you've heard of Tim Ferriss's book. 
I've actually never heard of that. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and that philosophy? We work a lot more than four hours a week, obviously, but a lot of principles in there are things that I've that we've really used a lot. Um, one of his big things in that book is talking about how to use freelance labor, like international freelancers, um, or to work as a freelancer. So, like for example, today uh, I was on Upwork.com hiring a bunch of freelancers for some web designs and things like that. And Janessa um, has an account as a as a freelance writer, so she's one on any given day. I'll be hiring people. Um, on the IT side or data entry, and she will be working for somebody on the same platform. That has kind of really been probably the biggest thing we've learned from that book is how to kind of remove location from the element of work. Tell us about some of the favorite places you've been. Are there any places you'd think about settling down? Places you might want to visit again? (laughs) It's always the toughest question. It's so hard, yeah. I love Wyoming. I don't know if I could settle down there, but I I just love it. And I don't even know if I can explain why. <laughs> like it's it's kind of harsh, like it's really windy. There's just I love how there's no people there. Like when we need a time, like last winter we were coming off of a time of of doing work travel, and so we were a bit exhausted from it and very cityed out because it had been like 2 months in cities and we went to Wyoming and it was just us and animals and empty spaces and winds and I just I loved it. Mm-hmm. I but I don't know if I could actually live there because it's so it's so remote in some ways. Mm-hmm. Wyoming's way up there for me for sure. Canada kind of always has a pull for me just because uh, oh, in yeah. in all of our travel in the west we, we, our kind of our our model is we go and we look for you know national forests or BLM land and we go back dirt roads and we just try to find a spot that no one's ever found before that we can you know leave looking the same way we arrived but is and is perfectly you know accepted and legal that we can camp there for a week or two but is just completely back in so like the spot we were at in wyoming we found that just by driving you know roads back to like oil rigs and then taking little two tracks and going where we should really not be going (laughs) with the casita as far as (laughs) off-road um (laughs) We kind of bent a few things coming out of that spot, but we were there for like three and a half weeks and not one person came through there. Um, so, but my point is the reason Canada kind of has a spot in my heart is because there's nowhere that I've found in the lower 48 that is as just kind of remote wilderness as what I can find in Canada where, you know, you'll just have like, you know, a flock of grouse walk through camp because they've never seen a human before. It just, it's a different feeling up there. So that's way up my list. Obviously the West it's it's a hard question. Yeah. And basically anywhere from like Montana, Utah, California, Oregon, just the just the west. We love the west. Tell us about the national forest equivalent in Canada. How do you look for dispersed camping and that sort of thing? Sure. So in Canada it's actually it's it's both simpler and harder because Pretty much all of Canada is what's called crown land, which is owned by the government. And that is free to camp on anywhere at any time for 21 days. So it's really easy to use. The problem is that that's for Canadian citizens. So in order to camp on Crown Land anywhere in Canada, the standard thing is to get a permit. It's like $10 a night if you're non-Canadian. So that's a little bit of, a, of, of, a, of an issue. If you're Canadian, you know, it's, it's simpler than National Forest because you, it's basically everywhere. But if you uh, are American, you're going to have to get a permit or you know, run the risk of getting a fine. So what are some of the difficulties of living this lifestyle? Have you had any challenges? I think sometimes we're torn between places because being able to be anywhere sort of leaves you wanting to be everywhere sometimes. 
And so sometimes there's a feeling of like, oh, well, we could be visiting these people or we could be doing this thing. But it's, I think it's a good thing to learn to just be content mm-hmm. where you are. And just hassles of living off grid where you, you have to be concerned about, you know, where we're going get, to get our water, like yeah. inconveniences like I that. I think that that's probably the biggest thing. Little inconveniences like, oh, we're out of water yeah. or yeah, like not being able to shower and, and needing to go to a meeting or something and having to figure something out mm-hmm. or, or just little road life things. Like there's always, there's always something that's loosened up or <laughs> trying to break or um, your car breaks down. And I mean, all of those things, you, it's just part of the life, I think. And they're inconvenient, but you, it's a worthy trade-off for sure. Mm-hmm. So you talked a little bit about this, but why continue to live a life like this? What are some of the rewards and benefits you found along the way? The freedom, for sure. Like, mm-hmm. the, the same thing I said that can be frustrating that you can be anywhere, it's, it's still the best thing to me, that you, you can be anywhere. Like, we can do anything. I feel so blessed that... I think we're so fortunate to live in a time and in a society that allows us to really do anything. Like we can work full time from the road and we can just go where we want to go and be where we want to be. I love that. I think freedom of location is the biggest thing. And and just having space to to think and process. Mm-hmm. And we're Christians, so for me my faith is a big part of the whole our whole road life experience. So to to be able to be in a place like Wyoming and have time to pray and steady is really important to me. Yeah. I think that sometimes it's overlooked when people live off the grid or on the road is that it opens up a lot of international travel opportunities because, you know, you don't have bills at home. You're not paying for rent. You're not paying mm-hmm. for, you know, your Wi-Fi or whatever that's going to keep running while you're gone. So if you want to take a two or three or four week trip, you can just drop everything, you know, park at the airport if you want and just everything stops. Your expenses in the States stop and you go and have expenses where you're where you're at rather than paying for everything double. Not having like a mortgage bill is it was really part of the freedom for mm-hmm. sure. So what advice would you give others that want to live this way? Is there any wisdom you want to share with us? The only part of living on the road that is going to cause somebody, in my opinion, to like really be stressed out and like have a bad time is the financial side. My advice to people like that would be kind of look at that as everything else is, is relatively easy. As far as, in my opinion, as far as finding a rig, finding something that you like, making it work. But once you're out there, you know, and you're on the land, you are going to need an income. And I would really recommend reading the four-hour work week and looking at, before you ever go on the road, if possible, look at ways you can set up some sort of income stream that's either semi-automated or at least doesn't involve your location. Secondary to that, I would say it's such an easy life in so, some ways, but then you are sort of faced with daily inconveniences that you don't have when you have a nice little house somewhere or, or a little apartment. So I think being able to allow yourself to take life as it comes and choose to be content and choose to be joyful and like, oh, oh, our car broke down. Okay. <laughs> like just kind of take it mm-hmm. because if you don't, you'll just, you'll be stressed out all the time. What would you tell someone who's considering living off the grid but doesn't know where to start, like in terms of food and parking and things like that? Well, as far as where to park, the shortcut to figuring that out is to download an app called U.S. Public Lands. It's like $3. That's basically all you'll need because it'll show you what areas are national forests, which areas are BLM. And if it's National Forest or BLM anywhere in the country, they all allow off-grid camping. That's the first step to make it really easy. Just download the app, see where you are, see where you're going, and just look for a National Forest. Then once you're there, as far as like 
actually living off the land. The easiest, you know, obviously just getting good books on edible plants and everything in that local area is the obvious starting point for just figuring out what you can what you can eat. Fishing is uh, a really good avenue. In most, a lot of western lakes, there's like sock trout in the lakes, usually rainbow trout. And so, you know, you can just get a, a little small collapsible fishing rod and some power bait. And, you know, that could be enough for providing at least a bunch of your nutrients. But that'd be where I'd start for sure. Yeah. And what do you think? Will you always live this way? <laughs> good question. <laughs> I don't know if we've decided. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we've decided. Uh, I assume we'll always live a non-traditional location life, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So whether that, you know, we've talked about buying some land in Canada and just having a cabin there that we go to, you know, for periods of time. So it may end up where, you know, as we have some kids come along over the next couple of years, where we do have a home base or two that are sort of an off-grid sort of, um, you know, we're there for three months out of the year kind of thing when we're not in the Casita or international. But I don't anticipate us probably ever living year-round in one house. I I don't think that's going to happen. So what's next for you two? Any news or projects that you want to share with everyone before we end? There's a couple of things on our to-do list that we're looking at, maybe 2017 being the year of more kind of more aggressive wilderness adventures. There's the... uh, uh, a canoe trail in the northeast it's about 800 miles long uh, like where you canoe called the uh, northern forest canoe trail the nfct so that's pretty high on the list and then we also want to do maybe some overland hiking trail probably not like the pct not the entirety of it but something like that is on the list mm-hmm. for sure yeah we'd love to do it that. seems like you two would be awesome wilderness guides <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you i don't know John's parents used to actually do wilderness no guiding. They met so on a guiding. Yeah. My dad was a guide and she was a client. <laughs> so maybe we should learn from them. Thank you for joining us. It was great to get to know you too and hear your story. Oh, yeah, thanks thanks for, for reaching out, guys. Yeah. I really love your blog and what you guys do. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. We really appreciate the support. Until next time.